You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. The Getty Art Museum in Los Angeles houses many world-famous art pieces. You may not be familiar with this, but they have a campus that's quite large, several acres, and the Getty is known for having very valuable pieces of art in many different collections. And in the mid-1980s, it had an opportunity to land a real prize, a marble statue dated to around 500 B.C. And this is known as a koros. Uh, it depicts a male figure who stands about seven feet tall. I'm about six feet tall, so if you think of another foot on top of mine, this is a large marble image of a male figure. And there are only 200 or so of these statues that have been found from ancient times. Many of them are fragments, but this one was complete. It was pristine. There was nothing wrong with it. The asking price in in the mid-80s was $10 million, which is about $28 million today. And so the Getty began, the museum began to investigate it. They ran tests on it. They studied it. They researched it. And after a couple years, they came to the conclusion we're going to do it. We're going to jump in. And they bought it for $10 million. They put it on display in 1986. But almost immediately, scholars began to say, something's not quite right here. And they began to throw doubt on the authenticity of the statue. And in spite of all the research that the museum had done, all the testing to determine whether this was authentic or not, As more and more evidence came to light, the more and more likely it seemed to be that this was indeed a forgery. A masterful forgery, but a forgery. In fact, because of its disputed credentials, the museum was forced to put this label underneath the statue on display. Greek, about 530 B.C., or modern forgery. Imagine going to a famous art museum and seeing, wow, this could be really ancient, or just a total total fake. And in 2018, 33 years after the initial sale, it was officially deemed a forgery and pulled from display. It was an embarrassing turn of events for the museum. Their prestige was infringed upon because they made a bad investment. And this idea of certification is a common practice from works of art to collectible items and memorabilia, even to social media profiles, right? The seal of authenticity that comes with a purchase or a stamp of approval or the little blue check mark on that profile shows or certifies to everyone that the item or the profile is the real deal, the authentic piece. And yet even with rigorous standards for certification, sometimes fakes and forgeries pass off as the real thing. And in the book of Galatians, what Paul is is doing is certifying the gospel. He is laying out in very clear terms what the true, authentic gospel message is. Because it was under attack. There were some who were teaching a different gospel. And, And Paul knew that if the gospel was confused, the gospel was lost. It's not like we can retain 90% of the gospel and still be okay. 
Paul wanted the gospel to be crystal clear because a confused gospel is no gospel at all. And Paul writes this letter, as we will see, with great urgency. Because unlike a work of art, these are life and death matters. Mankind's greatest need is for salvation. And if we get the gospel wrong, we have blocked the way to heaven. Galatians clarifies the gospel for us and calls us to live out its ramifications in power. And in the opening lines of the letter, in addition to the greeting, Paul lays out the true gospel of Jesus. In fact, the opening few verses are very different than all of the other writings of Paul. And what I'm going to do next week is, is go into more detail about why he said what he did in verses 1 through 5, why he introduced himself the way he does, what the situation was, and why he was so, so urgent, sometimes even combative. But what I'd like us to do today is to simply rehearse the old, old story. Because in these five little verses, Paul lays out the true gospel. He tells us how someone is taken from darkness to light, how the dead are raised to new life. And that not only provides sight for the blind, but for those of us who have been saved, it warms and fills and energizes our hearts to be told again the gospel truths. It should stir us and minister to us because the gospel isn't just for the lost. You'll hear me say this many, many times in the months ahead. The gospel is not just for unbelievers, it's for sinners. And that means all of us in the room. The gospel is for us. Well, what is the true gospel? Let's ask that question and answer it today. What is the true gospel? The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news, good news. So whatever the true gospel is, it's good news. Let's build a definition of what this is by walking through the text. And let's look at verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you. And peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There are three points that Paul makes here that answer for us the question, what is the true gospel? First, the true gospel is based on real historical events. And this is the difference between an authentic work of art and a forgery. A forgery simply appears to be based in another time period. It appears to be made in another era, but it really isn't. The real work of art has credible evidence that placed the composition, that placed the expression of art back in time. And take, take the Kuros statue I talked about earlier. There are several details that cast doubt on its authenticity. And if just one of these things was there, we might say, ah, well, that, that doesn't make quite sense. But when you start stacking up all these details, there's a much bigger picture of, hmm, this looks like a fake. Here's some of the details that they, they realized about this particular statue. The style of the statue mixes characteristics from different time periods. It's eclectic when none of these other statues are called eclectic. 
some tool marks don't match methods used in ancient times. No one knows where it was actually found. There's no site that it came from. It just showed up on the market. It was clean. It was really, really clean. And some experts looked at it and said, that's too clean. That's too fresh. Someone said this, quote, Any, anyone who has ever seen a sculpture coming out of the ground could tell that that thing has never been in the ground. And a 1952 letter that supposedly proved the authenticity of the statue turned out to be a fake. The postal code it was sent from didn't exist for 20 more years. The bank account that funded repairs wasn't opened until 1963, 11 years later. Every issue that came up started to undermine the credibility of the kuros and pointed toward the conclusion of forgery. The gospel is not a forgery. All the evidence that we find in it point to the conclusion that it is true. It's based on real historical events. And there are two that Paul mentions here in this verse. First, Jesus died willingly on the cross. Verses three and four, the the father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Who gave himself for our sins. Well, who is Jesus? The Bible teaches us many, many things about Christ. He is the central figure in the entire Bible story from beginning to end. The Bible shows us that Jesus is not just another man. He is 100% God and 100% man. He is the second member of the Godhead, the Son of God. And yet, this second member of the Godhead came to earth. He was born as a baby. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And he grew up and he lived in Joseph and Mary's home. He did what boys do. He lived in the town of Nazareth. He studied a trade. He became a carpenter just like his father, his earthly father. But after 30 years or so, he launched out into a public ministry. And Jesus traveled around the countryside preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing crowds of people. And he had a little band of followers that he trained. And it seemed like as he went along that they were just a frustrating frustrating lot because they just didn't get it a lot of times. And yet Jesus continued to show them grace and compassion, and he grew, and and he was sinless in all of these things. And at the end of that that three-year ministry, he was in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, and his opponents, the religious leaders, said, now's the time. They, They arrested him and put him before an illegal court and convicted him on trumped up charges. And then they twisted the arm of the the Roman uh, governor at the time, Pontius Pilate, who was a coward, by the way. And they got the Roman governor to crucify him. Even though Jesus had done nothing wrong. In fact, in the narrative of the scriptures, several times Pilate says, I find nothing wrong with him. Over and over again, his innocence was affirmed, and yet he was used as a political pawn. He was meant, his death was meant to keep the peace. Because again, Pilate was a coward. And so he crucified Jesus between two thieves. That's who Jesus was. And yet he wasn't just the victim of these unforeseen circumstances. Jesus was not passive. He gave himself is what the text says. He laid down his life willingly. John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I, lay down of, but I lay it down of myself. 
he willingly went to the cross. And after he died, two men, two secret disciples who decided at that moment to declare their loyalty. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, they buried Jesus in Joseph's tomb. Jesus died willingly on the cross. But that's only half the gospel facts because then God raised Jesus from the dead. And we wouldn't be here today if God didn't raise him from the dead. He didn't stay dead for long. And this event, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the tomb, changed history. Even Jesus' enemies had to agree. They confirmed that the tomb was empty. At the end of Matthew's gospel, the soldiers come to, them, come to the religious leaders and say, what do we do, basically? What do we do? And they said, well, just lie and tell people that, that the disciples stole the body away while we were sleeping. Okay, first of all, if you're sleeping, how do you know what's going on around you? So their story really doesn't hold much water. But the problem for the opponents, even at that time, even in the days after Jesus rose, was the empty tomb. If they could produce a body, all of this goes away. But they couldn't. And then Jesus started appearing to people, not just to his followers, because that would have been easy to say, well, you know, of course my Messiah appeared to me. He started appearing to people who were skeptics, like his brother James. He appeared to someone who was his opponent, Paul. And these men had dramatic conversions and ended up preaching the gospel that they once rejected. Jesus rose from the dead. Then the apostles, who were a cowardly lot, hiding in the days of Jesus' crucifixion, weeks later come out and they're preaching with boldness that you, these leaders, you all condemned Jesus to death. I mean, what explains that transformation? What explains the fact that they planted a church and that this church spread throughout all the known world and has disrupted empires and nations because of its radical teaching that Jesus is the Messiah? Jesus rose from the dead. The gospel is based on real historical events. It's not made up. It's solid. Our faith is grounded in time and space. Are there are there difficulties, perhaps, with reconciling some of the things? Are there details that, that have to be worked through? Sure. That's what apologetics is for, finding credible answers to our faith. But when you look at the story of, of the Bible, when you look at the death and resurrection of Jesus, you see that it is historically verifiable and accurate. So what is the true gospel? Well, we see that the true gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose again. The good news that Jesus died and rose again. And that explains the historical events. But Paul continues, and he he answers the why question. Why is the gospel good news? Why did Jesus die and rise? What are the effects of the gospel? Well, the gospel, the true one, gives hope to sinners. The true gospel gives hope to sinners. And this is in contrast to every human approach to salvation. Every religion has to answer the question, how do I get into heaven? And every human religion falls short of the biblical teaching because there's some way that you earn it, whether you give money, whether you do good deeds, whether you make a pilgrimage, whether you abide in this way of faith. There's something that you have to do, and that's what separates the true gospel from every other religion in the world. I just finished a book about Martin Luther, and maybe I've mentioned that once before. Luther was a wreck before he came to faith in Christ. He was a monk. He was physically gaunt. He would spend five to six hours in confession every day. And the author said it would 
drive the person receiving the confession half mad because he would go over every single slimy detail he could think of in his life and he would try to confess it and and give it over and and do what the church told him to do and then he'd walk out with 30 minutes he'd remember oh I forgot something and that that whole time was all for nothing he he did religious duties and he was abiding by his vows of obedience and poverty he went to Rome even at one point in time and saw the decadence and the indulgence and the sinfulness of the popes. And he said, what in the world is, the, is wrong here? And no matter how hard he worked, he couldn't get that hope and that peace. But it came as he read the scriptures, as he taught on the Psalms, as he started into the book of Galatians, as he meditated on Romans chapter one, that the righteousness of God comes through faith, not through works. The true gospel gives hope to sinners because the work is done. Jesus completed it. There is nothing more for you to do. And if you're resting on what you do to get into heaven, you can never stop doing. Perfection never rests. If you place your faith in Jesus, there's true true joy and true peace. Paul uses two phrases in verse 4 that reveal how the gospel gives hope to sinners. If you look at verse four with me, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus took our sin penalty. And this little phrase, for our sins, explains what happened when Jesus died on the cross. You see, this little word for is the Greek word huper. And it's not, there are several different ways that you can use the word for in the Greek language. This one implies an exchange, doing something on behalf of another person for them. Jesus died in exchange for or on behalf of our sins. So to understand why Jesus would go and would give himself on our behalf, we have to understand what sin is. And the the passage of scripture in Romans 3 that we read this morning pairs perfectly with this. What is sin? What is sin? We're teaching our boys uh, a catechism, and the catechism answer to this question is, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. It's rebellion against God. It's disobedience to his commands. It's not fulfilling the duty that he's called us to. It involves both sins of commission and sins of omission. You may never sin outwardly, but if you're prayerless and you don't trust God, those are sins of omission. Sin rebels against God and rejects him as your authority in life. It lives for self. It places something else at the throne of your heart. Sin involves big things and little things. Exaggerations and perjury are both lies, but they're far apart on the scale of like consequences. An exaggeration, it's not a huge deal in our eyes. Perjury, that's a, that's a crime. But before God, they're both lies. It's sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person is a sinner. And committing just one sin brings a steep punishment. And if we were just to look at some scriptural verses, we would see very quickly that, yeah, I'm a sinner. I mean, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives a list of sins. Let's just take a couple. Selfishness and jealousy are mentioned. 
Have you ever been jealous before? <laughs> have you ever been selfish? How many days of your life have you not been selfish? You could ask the same question to me. <laughs> That's who we are. We are sinners. And the payment for sin is steep. We face the penalty because God is a just and eternal God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the just reward for sin is death in hell. That's why Jesus gave himself on behalf of our sins. Because the penalty to pay for sin was too great for you and I to pay. There's not enough work. There's not enough money in the world. There's not enough things you can do. There's not enough time in eternity for you to pay for your own sins. Jesus did on your behalf. He exchanged himself for us. And Paul explains this more in Galatians 3. But the good news in Galatians 3, 10 through 13 is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He died in our place. But this exchange for our sins goes both ways. Not only does he take our sin debt, our sin penalty, we receive his righteousness. And that's what this word justification means. Justification is a huge theme in Galatians. And it means to be declared right before God. And the way that we are justified is by faith. There is no way that we can be declared right with God if we work for it. It's not possible through any work. Galatians 2.16 is, is probably the key verse in Galatians. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. To be declared right with God, to have your sins forgiven, to have access into heaven, you must receive the gift of Christ by faith. Your inability must be confessed and your, your trust must be in Christ alone. Well, why did Jesus give himself in exchange for our sins? The next phrase in verse four explains the purpose of his death. Look at it with me. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus' death delivers us from the present evil age. And this concept is a major emphasis in Galatians, and I'm excited to unpack it as we go along, because it's not a concept that we're familiar with or that we think of immediately. Jesus' death brings the dawning of a new age. Let me give you a couple of introductory thoughts about this so we can kind of head in the right direction. First, the, the present evil, the present age we live in is evil. That's what the text says. The present evil age. Satan is the God of this world who controls the present age and culture around us. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we are all born into this world, born with hearts that are spiritually dead, apart from Christ, rebellious to him. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 teaches us this. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The age that we live in is opposed to God. It's hostile toward God. And believers are not to be conformed to it. That's why Jesus' death is so important. His death makes us part of a new creation. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 is a verse you probably know or maybe you've heard of before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the reason why the New Testament calls us new creatures or part of the new creation. Because we have been saved by Jesus' death. And so we are delivered from the evil around us. At the end of Galatians, Paul reminds us that those in Christ Jesus belong to a new creation. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we read that Jesus' death and resurrection are the basis for God's recreation of all things. At the end of time, God will place all things under the, the head, who is Jesus. And that leads us to an important point. The present age we live in is evil. Jesus' death makes us part of the new creation. But we live in between ages, as it were. Already part of the new creation on the one hand, but not there yet on the other. And this is what theologians refer to as the already, not yet. When a person comes to faith in Christ, they're part of the new creation already. There's a new nature. The Spirit lives in you. There's transformation taking place. But all things haven't been, na- been made new yet. We still live in the present evil age that's ravaged by sin and broken, broken and broken. How are those who have been justified by faith in Jesus to live in this evil age? Galatians teaches us that new creation people are led by the Spirit of God. We keep in step with the Spirit who produces his fruit in our lives. And in this way, Galatians doesn't simply just teach us that we're declared right with God. It shows us how to live out our faith in Christ in the present evil age that we find ourselves. So why did Jesus do this? Well, Jesus died to forgive our sins, and Jesus died to deliver us from the present evil age. So what's the true gospel? Let's come back to that question. The true gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose again in our place to forgive our sins and to deliver us from the present evil age that we live in. That shows what the gospel accomplishes. It gives hope to sinners. It gives us the means of salvation through faith in Christ. It delivers us from the evil around us that we fight within our hearts and without in the culture around us. But there's one final point that Paul makes, one little phrase to add to our definition here. The true gospel exalts God. Look at verses four and five. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If salvation is accomplished by human effort, eventually it becomes all about me. If I can earn my salvation, it's self-centered. If I can work to gain eternity, then it's all about what I do. And therefore, like professional athletes who accomplish something, they let you know about it. Look at what I did. Look at how I did this. Look at what I accomplished. But the gospel isn't about you and I. The gospel exalts God. In fact, next week we're going to read Romans 3, 21 through 28 or something like that, the end of the chapter. And after this incredible explanation of the gospel, Romans 3, 27 says, where then is our boasting? In other words, what do you have to boast about? And Paul's answer is, our boasting is excluded. 
there's no reason to boast in the true gospel in yourself because all the boasting, all the exaltation is for God because he is the one that saved us. How does he do this? Well, Paul lists two ways that the gospel exalts God. First, Jesus died in accordance with God's will. This is the reason Jesus died for our sins. He obeyed the Father's will. It wasn't a mistake for him to go to the cross. It was God's plan. Jesus even said this in John 6, 38 and 39. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. By yielding to the Father's will, he honored the Father and exalted him. And ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection glorifies God. This is the result of Jesus' death. The doxology of verse 5, probably the most simple doxology in the entire New Testament, says, to whom be the glory forever and ever? To God be the glory for the gospel. The glory of God is the chief end of man. That's why we were created. The gospel isn't about me. Salvation isn't about what I get. The gospel is about how God demonstrates his glory by showing his love to unworthy sinners. That's what the gospel's all about. It can be no other way. The gospel of Jesus magnifies God through the salvation of sinners. So that brings us to a full definition of what the true gospel is. The true gospel is the good news that according to God's will and for God's glory, Jesus died and rose again in our place to forgive our sins and deliver us from the present evil age that we live in. The book of Galatians is going to to defend this statement, it's going to teach this statement, it's going to exhort this statement, and it's going to apply this statement. For us today, there are really three, three things that I want to leave you with. Number one, if you have never accepted this gospel, it's not a mistake that you are here today. This is the only way of salvation. And if we if we hem and haw and say, well, you know. There's probably another way to get to heaven. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, we don't want to talk about sin. That's awkward. Then we don't really love you. It's awkward to talk about sin. It's hard to, to look in the mirror and realize I failed. But it's in our inability where we can say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. If you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior, please do it today. Because this is the true gospel. I'm not assuming that everyone here is saved. But I am assuming that several of us, many of us, are believers. And if you're a believer and you're claiming to be part of Christ's body and this this stuff doesn't move you, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, right, I know all that. Then there's some serious heart work that needs to be done. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says that, that if someone can listen to a presentation of the gospel and not have his heart stirred, he must wonder whether he accepted it at all in the first place. For those of us who have believed, this is our lifeline. This is what we have. Stand firm in it. Believe in it. Rest in it. The work is done. There is joy and peace and flourishing here. And providentially, as we go to the Lord's table in a moment, this is what we're reflecting on. 
This is what we're remembering, that Jesus died and rose again, that he came for my sins in exchange for me, that he delivered me from the evil age that I live in, that he did it all for the glory of God by yielding himself to the Father's will. That's what we celebrate. Let's go to him in prayer as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. Father, this is the true gospel. And thank you for the Apostle Paul who made it so clear to us. I pray that we would rest in it and cling to it and elevate it in our hearts and lives. Oh Lord, give us grace to understand it anew, to apply it deep to our hearts that are so law-ish. Help us to live out the gospel this week. And thank you for the Lord's table now as we transition to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.